With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, the CDFA and the State Board are hosting sessions on defining regenerative agriculture, also wage and overtime changes to keep track of this year. But to start today, this week's Almond Matters, it's brought to you by Valent USA. The new year means that Almond Bloom isn't too far away. Here's Brian German with more. In this week's Almond Matters segment, we're joined again by our friend Todd Berkdahl, Field Market Development Specialist with Valent USA. And now, Todd, we've made it through the holidays and into the new year now, and uh, temperatures have cooled pretty good, and we've got some scattered rains here and there in the state. But uh, what are growers going to be working on during this time and um, getting trees ready for bloom in the next, what, uh, month or so? Yeah. So uh, while we're coming, right, right, we're probably three weeks, four weeks, three weeks away from first bloom, uh, maybe maybe a month. So uh, right now is a great time if a guys can get into the field to do some sanitation clean up um, any mummies, you know, nuts that are left on the trees that didn't shake off. Labor is expensive, so putting a crew through there is, you know, it's, it's, it's costly. You know, it used to be you could just throw labor at everything. You know, you throw cut some guys in there with poles, and they go through and knock the nuts off. With 2024 here, labor $16 plus roughly 28, 30% on top of that for taxes and fees and all the other garbage that goes along with it California imposes on us. And so we've got, you know, over $20 an hour, 20, probably almost $22 an hour when you really, you know, pencil it out, time you figure it out. So, I mean, that's reality, you know. So anytime you can conserve costs, it's a good thing. Uh, right now, because there's no limb, there's no leaves on the trees, the trees are still dormant. You can go out with a pretty high rate of oil uh, three to four, five percent oil, four fifteen oil, and esteem is a good mix. I uh, used to be we'd use uh, you know organophosphate, you know broad spectrum organophosphate, uh, going with horseman and oil in the wintertime. That was a cleanup. That was a sanitation venue. You know the recipe for pretty good success on on cleaning up overwintering pests. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what the status on that is. But right now, what we do have is we have esteem, esteem and oil. And it seems works pretty good on uh, on cleaning that cleaning that kind of stuff up. Uh, scale as well. If there's any scale out there, you get it before it you know gets out of hand. You suffocate the oil and put some uh, pure proxifen with the esteem through it, and it uh, does a pretty good job of cleanup. I like using pure proxifen in the dormant period rather than in the uh, in season uh, esteem because you can put oil with it, and I think oil really enhances the activity, penetrating you know bark and through the, the caps of the uh, the scale insects, as well as if you've got mummies, uh, you know, getting perfoxifen in there, uh, it'll stifle the, the growth of the larva. They're probably in there. They're probably beyond the stage of being able to, to stifle. Depends on the weather and whatnot. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. While it's not something we all want to think about, now is the time to make sure you have an estate plan in place for your farm or ranch. Director of Government and Public Affairs with the Ag Business Advisory Company, Pinion, Brian Keel says that's because of a tax law that will be phased out next year. You know, in 2017, Congress doubled the exemptions that can be claimed for, for estates. So right now, you can protect a lot of your wealth from, from uh, inheritance taxes. If those provisions expire a year from now, 
your ability to protect that wealth goes down dramatically. And those provisions are set to expire next year unless Congress extends them. We're looking at the ending of the increase in limits for state tax uh, and gift tax. So really important for farmers as they're thinking about 2024 to be thinking about estate planning and recognizing that right now we have an amazing situation in terms of our ability to do estate planning. But when those provisions expire, uh, it's going to get much harder to do estate planning. So it's, it's well worth thinking about that today. Heal says estate plans and trusts are governed by the existing law when they're created. And changes to the law afterward don't change the plan. Yeah, if you, if you take advantage, for example, of gifting, if you take advantage of that doubling of the amount you can gift, if you gifted in 2024, it doesn't matter if you then pass away in 25 or 26 after that, that provision has changed, you've already done the gift. So it's, it's important to take advantage of these provisions while they exist. He said the first step is to talk with your tax professional. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news when it's more convenient for you, you can subscribe for a podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your fingertips. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's the Agnet News Hour and it is available on Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson and we will return in just a moment. You are listening to the Agonet News Hour. In today's national spotlight, a lack of snow cover has Wisconsin dairy producers concerned about the health of their alfalfa crop. Jerry Clark of the University of Wisconsin Extension says with no snow, a cold snap could whip out the crop. That's the biggest issue right now, I think, is the weather. You know, we say, oh, this weather is great and it's easy to drive around. Yeah, for getting around on the roads. But from an agricultural standpoint, especially Wisconsin and their alfalfa industry, this is starting to get a time to worry because we do have in the forecast below average temperatures, which means that soil temperature is really going to start to drop without that snow cover. All it takes is a couple inches and it'll protect that soil temperature. But once we get soil temperatures below around 15 degrees, that's when alfalfa is going to die. It can't handle that cold temperature. Clark says cover crops can tolerate the colder temperatures better, but not entirely. You'll see winter wheat be a little bit more tolerable, but regardless, they still can't withstand those really cold soil temperatures. So we could see some decrease in you know winter survival on some of those winter crops. The winter rye looks really good right now. It's still growing in some cases, so it's kind of a wild year to see that happening. But yes, I think if this happens where we continue no snow cover, we get these uh, bitter cold temperatures, and we got to watch that soil temperature. I mean, dandelions will die in some of these cases. So these crops can have an issue moving forward. A lack of snow cover also means lower soil temperatures in the spring, delaying planting. Frost levels will definitely go deeper when we don't have that snow cover. If we all recall last year had snow cover early, mid-December, early December, we already had snow cover and it stayed all winter. Farmers talked about putting fence posts in the ground all winter, those kind of things. That's not going to be the case this year if, if this continues where we have this no cover and then these below average temperatures that are predicted. So I think there is when we're going to see frost levels go deep. Of course, that could be what takes a while in the spring for that frost to come out. Clark adds it's really a game of wait and see regarding what the season will bring. While the farm bill is a top priority for agriculture in 2024, trade is another as the industry seeks more demand to improve commodity prices. Will Stafford, CHS Director of Federal Affairs, says they want to see the Biden administration build on recent trade successes. 
I'll start by saying there are some amazing agriculture trade advocates in the Biden administration. Um, we, uh, you know, talked with Alexis Taylor at USDA or Doug McCaleb, the trade ambassador at USTR, and I truly think they're an amazing voice for American farmers and are constantly abroad discussing American agriculture with other um, other countries. You know, I do think that the administration has done a good job of opening some doors with other countries like their current discussions um, in the Indo-Pacific economic framework to work on non-tariff barriers to trade. Um, But we would like to see some of those uh, tariff reductions be discussed as well, some classic free trade agreements and market access. Stafford points to the Biden administration's efforts to ensure the U.S. can continue to export biotech corn to Mexico. It will be a win. We're very happy with what the administration has done to protect corn going into Mexico. They've been really great at um, standing firm with the WTO on behalf of America's farmers to make sure that Mexico is is honoring their commitments in the USMCA agreement to accept um, biotech corn. Um, I think that's been great on behalf of the industry. Um, I know that there have been some wins for um, for some specialty crops and, and for other products, um, especially in, in Asia and in India that the administration has really advocated on. As far as markets, we look everywhere. We'll take any market for our products. But, you know, I know we're always focused on Southeast Asia, um, for example. The Middle East um, are all places that we look at to be able to expand and, and send more grain. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, continuing our conversation from yesterday about the beef checkoff, we'll discuss the investments made by the program. Each producer, when selling cattle, invests $1 per head sold into the beef checkoff program. As stakeholders, cattle producers have a vested interest in the program and are encouraged to get involved. For more on checkoff program investments and how to get involved with Cattlemen's Beef Board, I visited with Jimmy Taylor, Oklahoma cow-calf producer and chair of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. If you want to be a part of the checkoff, uh, every state has nominating organizations, and those would be things like Farm Bureau, Cattlemen's Associations, uh, Farmers Union. You need to, to contact one of them that is an official nominating organization for your state, and I think that list is a USDA, a USDA website and you can see what is in your state, but express your interest there. They send names to the Secretary of Agriculture, and the Secretary of Agriculture is actually the one that selects our board members. Uh, we don't have anything to do with it. He'll, he'll select those from the different states. And our board is all volunteer. We've got 101 board members. Uh, they're from 42 different states, all give up their time. Uh, to come to our meetings and try to help move the industry forward as far as creating beef demand. Now, if you want to find out about your checkoff dollar, how it's working, go to the website drivingdemandforbeef.com. And on that, uh, you can not only find audited financials, annual reports, the projects we're doing in depth, just like we got them to study them to, to to pick which ones will give us the bang for the buck. But you can sign up for a publication called The Drive, and it's free. And it's uh, what I like to call a, a report to our investors. Those that invest that dollar, it gives a report on how how the progress is on those different projects and what those dollars are currently doing. If you want it in email form, you can get it monthly. If you want it in print form, you can get it quarterly, but it's free. And you don't even have to own a cow to get it. You can just go on that website, sign up, and uh, it will be sent to you. But anything you might want to know about the checkoff, 
go to that website. It's probably on there. And remember, anything that's in print, the USDA vets everything we put in print. So we've got to be accurate with our information. They, they scrutinize it and make sure that that's what we're saying is accurate. The Beef Checkoff Program staff implement the direction given by the Cattlemen's Beef Board. Taylor shares more about this resourceful team. When our organization was founded in 1985, it was based on a dollar a head. That was in 1985. A dollar in 1985 is worth 35 cents today. So with inflation, that keeps going down. We have fewer dollars to work with every year. So we've got to be very frugal with those. Uh, we, we don't have enough funding for projects or uh, to, to fund the, the staff that we might need. Where you could say we were probably short-staffed, but that's due to budget constraints. And if it was a boxing term that, that, that I use, I'd say our staff punches above its weight. They're very hard workers. They're, they take pride in their work and, and just uh, really good people. And I, I learned from them, too. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will return in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. Farmers in the Central Valley are being encouraged to apply for WaterSmart funding from the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. The WaterSmart program, a collaboration between the Bureau of Reclamation and NRCS, aims to support conservation practices for soil moisture management, improved irrigation efficiency, and water resource conservation. Over $2.3 million is available for three new projects in California. The $1.3 million project with the Fresno Irrigation District supports efforts including the installation of micro-irrigation systems, pipelines, and groundwater recharge practices. The Lower Thule River Irrigation District has $800,000 in funding available to support things like the installation of groundwater recharge basins and micro-irrigation systems. The Tranquility Irrigation District has $300,000 available to assist producers with efforts featuring micro-irrigation systems and on-farm recharge practices. The National Agricultural Law Center highlighted 2023 as a year for significant developments and changes. Some of the key legal and policy changes include developments in the Waters of the United States rules with updates to its definition facing legal challenges and Supreme Court decisions. The Supreme Court also upheld California's Proposition 12 allowing states to regulate veal, egg, and pork production. The 2018 Farm Bill received a one-year extension providing time for potential reauthorization in 2024. The livestock and poultry industries saw increased regulatory focus, concerns over water use intensified, and the right to repair movement gained momentum. Civil litigation on pesticides also resulted in significant awards to plaintiffs. Looking ahead to 2024, issues include corporate transparency rules, proposed changes to the H-2A program, and Supreme Court considerations affecting agency deference. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is seeking public input on proposed updates to how foreign filers report agricultural land holdings in the U.S. USDA's Farm Service Agency aims to enhance reporting on foreign ownership and leasing of U.S. ag land by including data on long-term leasees, assessing the impacts of foreign investment on agricultural producers and rural communities, and collecting geospatial information. 
The revisions will aid FSA in administering the Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act of 1978, which requires foreign entities holding an interest in U.S. agricultural land to report transactions to the Secretary of Agriculture. Public input can be submitted until February 16th through the federal e-rulemaking portal. The input collected from the public will assist in creating an electronic submission system for foreign filers and improve accuracy in data reporting. Significant changes to wages and overtime rules are going to be impacting ag operations this year. Chief Operating Officer for the Farm Employers Labor Service, Brian Little, described some of the most impactful new regulations affecting farming operations. The implementation of the final stage of the increases in the minimum wage and then the annual inflation adjustment that as long as we continue having the inflation we've had, we're probably going to be seeing in coming years. So this year we're going to be going up to $16 an hour. We're also in the final stages of the implementation of AB 1066, the ag overtime legislation. Large employers, people who employ 26 or more, are already eight-hour workdays and 40-hour work weeks after many, many years, as I'm sure everyone knows, of having six, 10-hour days in a work week. Uh, the smaller ag employers are at eight-and-a-half-hour day, 45-hour work weeks. So we've so got one more step to go to get to the eight-hour workday, 40-hour work week. Inputs being sought in how California should officially define regenerative agriculture. The California Department of Food and Agriculture, in collaboration with the State Board, is organizing another series of public listening sessions to receive comments that will help define regenerative agriculture for state policies and programs. The listening sessions are scheduled for January 11th, February 22nd, April 3rd, and May 29th. This initiative aims to incorporate science-based standards into agricultural policies, providing a comprehensive framework for farming methods that enhance natural resources across California. The suggested framework includes criteria such as applicability to California agriculture, positive impacts on environmental, social, and economic goals, measurable outcomes, and emphasis on soil health. Updates on the public listening sessions and the process for defining regenerative agriculture are available at cdfa.ca.gov slash regenerative ag. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. This is the AgNet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. California State 3rd District Assemblyman James Gallagher was at a conference this week in Nebraska. There he caught up with farm broadcaster Susan Littlefield. She shares this interview with us. Let's talk a little bit about the area that you represent, because you made a comment that it, um, it is definitely agriculture. Uh, yeah, so a very rural uh, district. Uh, I represent a very rural district. Uh, agriculture is, is really the largest industry. Uh, it's in the Sacramento Valley of, in, of Northern California. It's a beautiful place. Uh, we also have actually the smallest mountain range in the world in the Sutter Buttes. Um, and so, you know, a lot of, it's a very unique place uh, full of some really hardy, awesome people um, that, you know, I've been proud to represent. Agriculture is such a vital role to the economy in that area. And you feed the world, literally. Having said that, um, drought relief, I know that that's been a big fear and, and worry for you guys in California. How is that working with, with water rights and, and trying to keep those crops growing when, when the skies don't bring the rain? Yeah, no, we've, uh, we've had to really battle a lot of, I would say, crazy regulation that has, has caused cutbacks to our, wa- our farm water in California. Uh, and then here recently in the legislature, we had a big battle over a bill that would have upended water rights, uh, you know, mostly affecting farmers and ranchers in California would have essentially made their rights subservient to other interests and, and basically subservient to this, bu- this bureaucracy 
uh, known as the Water Resources Control Board. Um, uh, fortunately, we were able to defeat that legislation uh, in the last cycle, but there are always attacks on our water rights. And the truth about California is we've always had droughts. We have, we have droughts followed by flood, flood mm -hmm. periods. That's, that's been the history of California. Our real problem in California is a lack of political will uh, to do to build the infrastructure to harness that water, you know, and store it during wet periods so that we have it during the drought periods. Uh, we haven't built a new water storage facility in about 50 years uh, in California, even though we've doubled our population. Um, so, I my myself and others really think it's time to make make those critical investments in water infrastructure um, and harness you know the water that we do. The you know billions of gallons of water that we do get uh, during our wet periods. Well, I know that uh, you were talking as well while you were here at the Land Expo, um, political consequences in agriculture, and of course, Prop 12. I'm sure is on everybody's mind, and 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 I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> I did not vote for it. So you know, just so you know, and we fought against that in California, but I know it's been a huge impact. Um, you know, to the farmers and producers here in the Midwest. Did you expect, I mean, I know you said you voted against Prop 12, but did you expect that type of political consequence to trickle across a nation like it did in a bill that was passed by those who saw the bill different than you? I didn't, I don't think I saw it at the time. I mean, I, I was really just fighting it back against what I thought was a very ignorant uh, view of agriculture. Uh, and, and we've been doing that for quite some time. It's, it's one of the challenges that we have is that so many people have no experience with agriculture. They've never been on a farm. You know, they've never been in a hog facility, right? They don't know anything about it, right? And so all they hear is this narrative about animal rights or animal cruelty, um, largely driven by these very urban interests, right, and, and environmental groups. They pull up the heartstrings, and we're, we're constantly trying to have to, like, counter that narrative um, and in a place like California, like, you know, these things pass overwhelmingly because, you know, people just, they don't understand, you know, how these farms operate. Um, and it's frustrating, but it's, it's something that the challenge is we have to educate people uh, and really inform them on what it takes to bring food to their table. You know, this doesn't show up by happenstance, right? Um, and policy can really affect our ability to do that. Shortly after that, there was a big article, you know, about the lack of bacon that was available in California as a result of Prop 12. Um, and a lot of our Asian community in, in California relies on pork products as a staple part of their, of their diet. Um, and the lack of availability as a result of the policies that the people of California had, had passed. You know, it's ironic. Um, but we need to really drive home those consequences and say, look, it, this is why you can't do that. As you say that, um, can this be countered? Can you guys in the assembly say, all right, we have seen the ill effects, food prices going up, uh, the bootlegging of food coming across the borders in Idaho, for example, in Oregon. Right. Can, can there be something changed for Prop 12? Um, it would have to go back to the voters. So even if we in the legislature did, it would have to go back to the voters. I think it's definitely worth consideration, something to look at. Hey, can we tweak this in a way at, or, you know, at least reform this in a way that actually is workable um, and that doesn't penalize, you know, farmers out of state? Um, I'm tired of our own farmers getting penalized in California. We've been fighting back against that. But now when you're like you're, you're, you're hurting farmers in other states and at the end of the day, you're hurting the consumer 
I think that's what we really got to drive home is like now we're hurting consumers and the, avail- and the availability of food at a reasonable price to those consumers. I think really kind of driving home that message and talking to people throughout California, um, that could have an effect that we could you know, maybe make change there and create a, a better policy. Um, but it is a, it's a heavy burden. And if, if there, what's next? I mean, when it comes to, to control, you talk about, you know, the control you're seeing with your farmers. I mean, you think about almond trees. Is somebody going to say you're hurting the almond trees when you're shaking them to get the nuts off? I mean, there just mm. seems to be so many levels to this. It could have some ill effects. Yeah, I, I really worry about it. Um, you know, I mean, number one, I, I really wish the Supreme Court would have decided that case in the way that I think they should have, which is, look, this is clearly discrimination between states. Um, and, and look, you have the, a state has the ability to pass policy for its own state, but it can't, in effect, pass policy uh, in other states, right, and impose it in that way and use its, you know, uh, its commerce powers to impact other states, right? Um, unfortunately, that's not how it came out. Um, so I think one, we, we do need to try and see if we can maybe get that back up to the Supreme court and get it, you know, get that, um, hopefully overturned. (laughs) Um, but then in the meantime, yeah, each state, I think working in its own way to help people understand, um, that these policies really impact food, that they really impact the ability of farmers to, to get you nutritious food at a reasonable cost. As we wrap up our conversation, we've got a minute or so left. Uh, what's something positive that you're doing for agriculture right now in California in, in your role as an assemblyman? Um, so one, I'm really working to try and push back against these truck rules that are coming down that are going to impact uh, agriculture. Right now it's starting with commercial fleets uh, of trucking, but like trying to push them to go to fully electric. We need flexibility here. We need a reasonable path. Um, and And really like you know, all electric vehicles is not going to be that path. It's not feasible. It's not realistic. Um, so we're pushing back against that. Um, we're trying to get some additional uh, drought relief out um, to farmers and, and, and even industries that were, you know, uh, vendors and others who were impacted by the drought and, and thousands of acres being fallowed. Um, and look, and then we're just really trying to push for a reasonable policy uh, right now, we just had ag overtime chain. You know, we now have $16 minimum wage in California mm-hmm. with overtime kicking in after 40 hours. That's going to be a huge impact um, to agriculture. I think we're going to be looking to, hey, how can we make tweaks to that policy? Because it's going to have a really big impact to California farmers. Well, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you again to Susan Littlefield and California State 3rd District Assemblyman James Gallagher. This is the AgNet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. For today's featured interview, I'm talking with Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Let's talk about um, appropriations and funding and what you are thinking of for NCBA and what you think we can be, what we'll be seeing this year. Sure. You know, all of agriculture is is watching the, uh, the the debate over government funding playing out on Capitol Hill at the moment. That first tranche of, of uh, continuing resolution spending authority that the government is operating under right now expires on January 19th. That first tranche includes critical programs for, for cattle producers and, and farmers and ranchers around the country with the ag appropriations bill being part of that package. 
So it really is going to be kind of all eyes on that discussion and how uh, the border security uh, fight is, is going to play into that and how Speaker Johnson is going to navigate the Freedom Caucus that's already criticizing the deal that he has uh, struck with, uh, with uh, Chuck Schumer in the, in the U.S. Senate and what those prospects may be. Uh, you know, we're, we're back to talking about what a shutdown could mean. Uh, for for the cattle producers, for the for the ag industry in, uh, in particular, and, and and across the economy, um, as as the Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill uh, battle over how to get this funding authority uh, completed and and finished, so they can get on to other business, and it's going to provide a roadmap, really, for what we can expect in farm bill discussions as the end of uh, this Congress kind of comes to a close over the next uh, over the next eleven months. Uh, it, it really is going to be difficult with those tight majorities and shrinking majority for House Republicans with the departure of Kevin McCarthy and others uh, to get something done on a partisan-only basis. Uh, so what happens in the next two weeks with spending authority is going to be uh, a really good roadmap for what kind of fight we can expect on the farm bill in the coming months. Do you think with having the new Speaker of the House that that is going to make things more difficult by, you know, with somebody who has not been leading these discussions as a speaker does um, in the past? Well, I, you know, it, it, to, to a certain extent, this is such uncharted territory to have a narrow majority and, you know, a substantive group of people in your own party that basically aren't willing to take yes for an answer. They, they, they find fault with any deal that's struck. Um, what they really would like to see is a shutdown in some cases. Um, they're 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 largely unconcerned with the economic impacts to their own, um, you know, rural constituents in some in some instances uh, that that could that that could uh, breed. Um, so whether it's Speaker Johnson newly minted in that role or whether Kevin McCarthy were still the speaker, I think the same challenges persist in navigating this environment. Um, you know, Speaker Johnson is a uh, is a principled guy. Um, he's a he's a principled conservative that that you know also I think recognizes the dangers of a shutdown, not just the economic dangers, but the political dangers for the for the Republican Party in, in uh, re-election mode as well. So I I don't think that his inexperience in this role is is complicating it. I you know a fresh set of eyes is not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it is a very difficult set of circumstances. It is, and you know, and you mentioned once again having to have the the conversation about shutdown or possibility of a shutdown. With that, you know, um, I, I may be completely off base, and if that's the case, feel feel free to tell me. But with facing this over and over again, as producers are, does that cause more of a problem in in business, or just more stressors on the person in general as they're watching what's going on in our government, wondering what exactly is going to hold the future, and then we think that it's going to be settled, and then it's not. It seems like this routine that keeps happening here um, for the last you know, several months um, is happening once again. Is that going to continue to have a strain or do you think that that we'll just be able to get by it and keep going? It's always a strain, just like market volatility has been a a big story in the cattle industry over the last few months. um, Political instability also is detrimental to the business environment. If you don't know whether the government's going to be open next week, it's very difficult for you to plan in your business and, and, and do all the things that you need to do to be successful. So absolutely, instability, I, I, you know, volatility, those are words that are, that are always going to be toxic to a business environment, particularly a small business environment where they don't necessarily have capital to weather long-term shutdowns or massive market shocks. We've seen that time and time again over the last few years, and it's no different looking at these circumstances in front of us now. This is, this is always a problem for producers um, if, if they don't know whether the lights are going to be on tomorrow. Right. 
And as you said, it, it kind of leads into a discussion about the Farm Bill and what, you know, questions about what we will see as the Farm Bill discussions in Congress actually get rolling. Uh, do you think with the current political temperament that we're going to have a difficult discussion once again with Farm Bill. Obviously, Farm Bill was supposed to be passed in, you know, last year, and there were never even real discussions on creating the Farm Bill. Um, are we going to see, you know, real work on that in the coming months, or do you think we're going to see more, even possibly another extension? I think that the Ag Committees, both Republicans and Democrats, on both the House and Senate side, are in a good spot and working diligently on a quality farm bill. Mm -hmm. The problems with the farm bill exist outside of that ag presence in Washington. It's the folks that don't feel they have as much at stake that want to use that farm bill process for political gain, that want to use it as a tool to uh, extract concessions in other areas, that think it's too much money to spend. Um, you know, you pick your pick your issue with it, but it really is an issue outside of those uh, more honest brokers that are truly focused on on what's best for agriculture. And I think we're blessed with really solid leadership, uh, both on the R and D side, uh, working through that bill. But it doesn't it doesn't uh, escape the, the those larger challenges that we're seeing on funding and everything else. Um, and it is going to be a difficult path out of the ag committees and on to the to the larger bodies uh, to get that bill passed. A trillion dollars is a lot of money to spend any time. It's an awful lot of money to spend in a campaign year in a highly partisan environment with extremely tight margins on Capitol Hill. So it, 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 it all adds up to a, a really daunting task to try to get a farm bill to the president's desk um, before the election. Now, I think that definitely leaves some room for lame duck after the election and some things like that. You know, we've heard people talk about it as maybe a, a good target, but that means they've got to start having those conversations about substance in the farm bill now. Um, and I think the the, uh, the leadership on both sides of the hill is, is prepared to do that, and I expect that'll start getting cranking here after they deal with this funding fight in the next few weeks. Yeah, yeah, and I should have specified to you, you know, the the ag committees, as you said, have done quite a bit of work on the farm bill. It's outside of the ag committees that um, there's been a bit of a holdup, um, and uh, you know, as you pointed out, a lot of different in opinions on the importance of aspects of the farm bill. Um, are, are there things that you that the NCBA is still hoping to see in the farm bill? And do you think that you will get the things that th your producers need? You know, we're, we're hopeful that, that the lawmakers on both sides of the hill are going to continue to recognize the importance of fully funding uh, things like the, the, the vaccine bank to, to make sure we're adequately prepared to respond to a foot and mouth disease outbreak where we're ready to see one uh, return to the U.S. after 100 years. Uh, we, we're really focused on ensuring they continue to fund those voluntary conservation programs. They're so critical to the U.S. cattle producers being the most sustainable in the world. They're producing the highest quality beef the world has ever seen with the lowest environmental footprint. And in part, that's due to those voluntary conservation programs that are authorized through the Farm Bill. Um, and, and we want to make sure that those risk management tools that are increasingly important to cattle producers, whether it's LRP or pasture rangeland and forage, um, continue to be available and available at scale uh, to small producers who don't have access to as many risk management tools. Uh, so we want to continue to highlight those items. We think that the, the lawmakers understand the importance of them. Um, but, you know, whenever deals are being cut, we want to make sure we don't end up on the cutting room floor with those priorities. So we're going to keep, keep pushing them and keep educating about them and hope that, uh, hope that we end up in the finished product. We are going to take a quick break. This is the Acnet News Hour. I am Sabrina Halverson talking with Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and we will continue the conversation right after this.
Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we're talking this hour with Ethan Lane, the Vice President of Government Affairs with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We continue the conversation now. So what about regulatory priorities for 2024? You know, 2023 was an interesting year for some regulations. What do you think we'll have coming for us this year? You know, we're, we're, we're watching with some concern uh, some of what we're seeing coming out of USDA. Obviously, they continue to be very focused on what they're calling their competition agenda. Um, you know, we believe as well that the competition is really important in the marketplace. Um, our producers want a fair environment to operate in, but they also want an ability to differentiate their product and, and, and seek premiums uh, for the cattle that they're raising. And, and they don't want to see a return to commodity cattle. They don't want USDA inserting themselves in the marketplace like they're trying to with their packers and stockyards rulemaking, uh, picking winners and losers, uh, or worse, pushing for an environment where everybody gets paid the same for their cattle regardless of what they are. And that's the danger um, of some of the, 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 the ideas that are being contemplated in the Packers and Stockyards rulemaking that uh, Secretary Vilsack has been pushing for, uh, again, in his second term here in office. Um, you know, we're also watching carefully as they work through new labeling requirements for the product of the USA label to ensure that that uh, arrives at a point where, um, you know, we, we fix the loophole that product of the USA has, has had for some time that allows retailers uh, to kind of just stamp that on whatever package they want. We want to see that go away, but we want to make sure that's replaced with a system that, that delivers premiums to producers for the product that they're producing, rather than just a, a kind of a, a lip service label uh, at the end of the supply chain. So we'll be watching that roll out as well. Um, we're also watching closely the, uh, the, the progress of the traceability rulemaking uh, for electronic ID to make sure that that finished product doesn't put uh, unnecessary burden on producers, that it protects their data security, um, that it doesn't result in additional cost uh, for those producers, but that it provides a system that we need to make sure that we can respond uh, uh, to, to a disease outbreak with uh, a traceability system that's nationally significant and, and ideally as voluntary as possible. A lot of questions come to mind, but, you know, going back to the the Packers and Stockyards, and you mentioned something that um, stood out to me, and I just want to highlight it a little bit, but the idea of being paid the same for all cattle, regardless of quality, what could that do if, you know, if, I mean, it's like in any business, top quality items get, you know, top pay, right? It should be the same in cattle production, and if certain things go through, it might level that out so that producers who produce top-quality cattle are getting the same amount as a lower quality. Is this right? Yeah. Track? 20 or 30 years ago, one out of every four beef-eating experiences was a negative one for consumers. We've remedied that in the U.S. supply chain through massive increases in quality. As I said earlier, we're producing the highest quality beef in the U.S. right now that the world has ever seen. And, and we, we incentivize that through premiums in the marketplace, you know, better genetics, different feeding regimens, you know, meeting that consumer demand and producing what the consumer is looking for. And that comes through market signals. Those market signals are sent by the use uh, of sometimes in the cash market, depending on where you are in the country, sometimes, uh, you know, through the use of, of, of formula and grid transactions. Um, but, but regardless, that's, that's done through the use of the free market to send those market signals to producers in the form of premium. So if we get to a point where USDA is inserting themselves in the marketplace through regulation um, in an effort to, to achieve their version of fairness, and, and, and if that version of fairness looks like someone who doesn't receive the same premiums you know, being able to litigate or litigate at scale – um, on, on every one of those transactions, that is going to disincentivize the, the supply chain from 
from paying out those premiums because it's not going to be worth it for the litigation risk. So while the, the objective of, of fairness in the marketplace and, and competition is a, is, a, is, a, is a worthy one, how you do it is critically important. And, and you don't want to disincentivize that innovation. You don't want to disincentivize that differentiation of product in the marketplace. And we're afraid that following the course the USDA is currently following, that's exactly what we're going to end up with. Do you think that uh, cattle producers' voices are being heard on this topic when it comes to the USDA? Are they responding to you know, the information they're being sent from the actual industry? You know, the Biden administration seems to be extremely focused on small and very small producers. And, and you know, that's the core of our membership, too. Um, but it, it, there seems to be sort of a, a, a you know, across a the administration, Bidenomics focus on punishing any business that gets too successful or grows too large. And, and whether we're talking about a family farm um, that, you know, that, that, that buys up the neighbor's property when, uh, when a family retires and doesn't have a, 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 you know, a, a child that wants to stay in the business, or whether we're talking about you know, a, a, a backgrounder that's picking up additional pasture land and growing their operation, um, you know, we want to make sure we're creating room for those businesses to grow and for those, for those business people uh, in the cattle business to, to have a vision of where they want to take their business. Thank you once again to Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and once again, we thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.